Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Tuesday, September 6, 2011, and this is episode 738. And because we missed Monday due to Labor Day, uh, we will go ahead and do the Monday-style show today, which, of course, are your questions, comments, videos, commentary, all kinds of stuff like that. You want to send me that, you put something in the subject line, a question for Jack or video for Jack or article for Jack. And uh, send that to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, and I'll see what I can do to get your content on the air. Get about 400 of those a day without exaggeration. So that means that only a small portion of them get on the air, but I do read them all. And when I get the same thing from lots of people, it always gets on the air. So send me what you want to hear. Uh, I'm looking for more questions, though. I get tons of articles and videos and stuff like that. That stuff's cool, uh, but I'd like more questions, folks. If you have questions, that's... Uh, that's how this, this, this style of show really started out, and I'd like to do more actual, hey, how do I, or what can I, or what should I type stuff. Um, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors before we get to your question sponsor of the day. Number one today, Emergency Essentials, located at www.beprepared.com, the domain name. You would think the Boy Scouts would have been prepared enough in seeing the coming of the World Wide Web, and you would think that they would have got that domain. But no, no, my friends, Emergency Essentials got it because they were even more prepared than a Boy Scout. And that's what they can help you do is be more prepared than even a Boy Scout to make sure that you're ready for any emergency or natural disaster that could come your way. Really specializing in long-term storage food items. Check out Emergency Essentials today. Again, at BePrepared.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals. When I need something herbal-based or a raw herb and I do not have it growing in my backyard or do not know where to find it, the only place I ever even bother to look is westernbotanicals.com and the reason is whatever I'm looking for I'm going to find it there and if I have something that I want to treat herbally uh, instead of using uh, medication I know that I'll find a preparation there as well so whether I want to formulate something on my own or I want something pre-prepared I know Western Botanicals is the place to go and if I'm not sure I know that if I call them they're going to help me and help me pick out what I actually need and I know I'm going to get really great quality product that's either organically grown or wild crafted so that's why I think you should use Western Botanicals for anything and everything related to herbal needs that you have check out westernbotanicals.com today next up remember you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube and Twitter you can also connect with me on the forum remember to check out our gear shop we have some really cool stuff in the gear shop like the Emberlit stove some new paracord items. Remember, this is a big one. There's a contest right now. You can win an $890 AR-15 upper from ready-made resources. Make sure you enter that contest. If you don't enter, you cannot win. And, uh, you know, your odds of winning are pretty good. Even with a few thousand people entering, it's a hell of a lot more likely you're going to win this than, uh, let's say, the pick six lottery or even one of those little scratch ticket ones. Uh, you have a pretty good shot of winning here. You know, it's... Uh, it's a relatively small field that you're playing in. All you got to do is fill out the form, and you can find the link in today's show notes. And that contest runs till the 22nd, so your time to enter is running out. Take a shot at it. Remember, it's not a firearm. It's an AR upper. That means we can ship it to you anywhere in the United States. You provide your own lower. 
All right. Um, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get over $100 worth of free ebooks. You get a whole bunch of discounts from 29 different vendors, and more are being added all the time. And if you are military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps prior service or active duty, you qualify for a special discount. People ask me all the time, I don't want PayPal. How can I pay without PayPal? Go to the website. Click on Members. When you go to join at the bottom, there's one that says pay by cash, check, money, order, or silver. Click that. There's a form. You fill it out and you send it in. Yes, you can pay by cash, check, or money order. You can also pay by silver. A year of the MSB is $50. You can buy that with one ounce of silver. It's not as big a discount as it used to be, but it's still a pretty good discount. Uh, you save uh, quite a bit just by paying in silver. Uh, so do consider joining the MSB today by any one of those methods. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Before I go to your your uh, emails and stuff, though, uh, I want to let you guys know again about the Expo, the Self-Reliance Expo in Denver and Salt Lake City. I will be at both of them. I will be co-keynote speaking alongside of Dave Canterbury. And uh, both of them should be really great events. I've had a lot of questions from people. Hey, can you come to our house for dinner? Can we buy you dinner? Things like that. I'm sorry I can't do that. Uh, my time is really condensed during those days of that show. And uh, I, uh, I I would love to be able to accommodate everybody, but I simply can't. I will probably, you know, on all days, except for one, I know that I'm booked for a dinner with some folks that uh being done through the organization. So probably Saturday or maybe maybe both Friday and Saturday in Denver and definitely in the two days in Salt Lake. I plan on making myself available after the expo, like maybe we go to like a, a group thing at a bar or something like that, have a beer. And those of you that don't drink beer can have a cup of coffee or whatever, just not just get to know me but get to know each other i'll be at the booths just about all day long at both events come on by our booth and you'll see us there we have a really cool banner being made up for the event so uh so definitely come see us i also put out a thing on facebook i'll reiterate it here i could use some help uh at the events they're they're full day long events um if i'm going to go anywhere that means i leave dorothy by herself in the booth if she's going to go anywhere she leaves me by herself and if we both went somewhere there'd be nobody at our booth I have to do keynote speaking uh, for two, you know, each each day. I've got about a one-hour presentation, so that leaves Dorothy alone. So what we could use are some people that maybe would just hang out in our booth with us for an hour, you know, here or an hour there, and just give us a little bit of relief. There's not a lot to know. You, if you listen to the show, you know what the show's about. You can tell people that we'll have a few items for sale, and uh, they'll be there. And the ones that help us out will probably get a free T-shirt. Just email me uh, with help for Expo in the uh, subject line. And I may not need everybody that responds, but I'm going to get back to everybody and say basically just show up and I'm not going to have any kind of major schedule or anything. And if you're around and available and there's some, and we need somebody, we'll tell you what we need done. It'll take five minutes to give you an orientation and you can help out and volunteer at the booth at either Expo. Anyway, whether you're going to volunteer or not to help us out, Please come. If you are anywhere near Denver or Salt Lake City, uh, again, Denver is the uh, 17th and 18th of September. That's coming up next, the end of next week. And then Salt Lake City is the 7th and 8th of October. I would love to meet as many of you as possible there. And with that, let's go ahead and get into your questions, feedback, commentary, etc. Uh, the first one I thought was really cool, and I was going to... 
there's a video with it. So, you know, sometimes, including today with another story, I pull video feeds out into audio and I put it on and you can listen to it. Uh, there's a, there's a video with this one, but it's, it's, it's in England and the people have very pronounced accents and then quite a bit of it's visual and there's a lot of music and some of the people are kind of hard to understand because they have heavy accents and I don't mean to offend anybody from England. I'm sure you think we have heavy accents too and you're probably right because it's all relative, but it just didn't work well for that. So I'm just going to have to read you the article and point you to it in the show notes, but it's really cool. Um, the headline is that allotments lead to a staggering 51% fall in antisocial behavior. Uh, allotment is not something that we're very familiar with here in the United States, the term. An allotment, uh, especially in England, my understanding is that's where it's really a big thing, is that an area given to citizens by government that would be you know, considered wasteland or government land for growing food. So to, like a vegetable garden allotment type of thing. And they, they were actually very popular at one time, and they're making a strong comeback in the last 20 years as well. And um, the 51% fall in any social behavior really lines up well with what Jason from the Urban Farming Guys told us about what they've done in uh, a really dark part of St. Louis. So let me read a little bit of this to you. In 2009, the early days of Landshare Hugh Fernley Whittingstall visited a community allotment for local residents in Le Lehigh, Greater Manchester, as part of a river cottage program. Two years on, the allotments are thriving, and local police are amazed to find that antisocial behavior has fallen by over 50% in that area. The community allotment is a joint venture between Lehigh Neighborhood Policing Team and Wigan Council and was spearheaded by two very determined ladies, Doreen and Marge. It was set up to encourage young people to take an interest in the growing their own fruit and veg, uh, visiting, visiting the site, Hugh said. I'm absolutely certain that it will make a real difference in the lives of dozens of kids. You can't ask for more than that. He was right. Residents are able to take on individual allotment plots at the site. And the site is a well, and well used by young people. But local police are astounded by the massive drop in the amount of antisocial behavior on the estate since allotments were established and believe the allotments have had significant impact on the fall of social problems. Local police who set up the allotment have reported that an incredible fall in the amount of antisocial behavior in the last two years since the allotments were established. And police community support officer Wendy Walter said in the past year there has been a staggering 51% reduction in antisocial behavior on the estate. Locals agreed the allotments have had a positive effect on reducing antisocial behavior. Of the local One of the local residents commented over the past two years the estate has seen a great improvement in antisocial behavior since the allotment started. I'm sure that this has had an effect on giving children somewhere to go and something to do. Growing your own food is well known to have a positive effect on health. And recent research by the Food and Life Partnership also found that growing and eating healthy food in schools also improved the behavior and performance of school pupils. The massive reduction in antisocial behavior seen at Lehigh allotments is further evidence of the personal and social benefits of growing and eating healthy, fresh food with our families and local communities. Love the story, but is anybody else tired of the words antisocial behavior? Well, I don't even know what the hell that means. All right, I guess it means kids acting up, but actually when a country like in England uses the term, it, it bugs me a little bit that it might be a little bit more about social engineering than kids not acting up. But I bet it does have a really good um, impact on kids not doing things like vandalizing stuff and uh, breaking things and stealing stuff and forming little uh, pseudo-precursors to gangs, which is a lot of places in America today 
where they don't think they have a gang problem. That's kind of what they have. They have these little groups of thugs that aren't organized at the level of a gang, but they're filling the role that a gang would fill if there was a full-on gang there. And it probably disrupts all that. I have a few theories about why. Um, from the report here, basically, it's all angled that, hey, if you give them something to do and some place to go, and uh, then, then they're not going to be as likely to cause problems. And I think that's true. I think it's really true with young males. Uh, boys are rougher, tougher, and more likely to get into fights and other things like that, and they need it more than, than even the girls do. Well, I, I'm not saying the girls don't need it, but I'm just saying young, there's not a lot of young girl gangs, right? But there's a lot of young male in gangs, and that's the, uh, that's, that's an issue there. But I think it's more than just they have something to do and something to, someplace to go and, and, and things like that. When you install something like this into a community, an allotment, procedure, community gardens, whatever you want to call it. Most of the kids are not going to be there with just other kids. Other adults have to come into the mix, like these two wonderful women here, uh, Marge and what other, the other lady's name, I can't remember, don't see it. So, uh, But these two ladies are great that are forming kind of the backbone of this thing. But as soon as kids like start getting really excited about something, well, mom and dad want to know what's going on, so they go out there too. Well, what happens is, and if you watch the video, you see all types of adults there. So all of a sudden, the adults are outside of their houses talking to each other, surrounded by the children. So now, little Tommy, not only is Tom's mom paying attention to what Tommy's doing, uh, mom is meeting the neighbors on all sides of her, who also all know who she is now and know who Tommy is now. Does this remind you of anything? Those of you that grew up in the, the 70s and the 80s and further back, were kids back then, you didn't screw up in public because, not just because you might get caught by your parents or you might get caught by a teacher, but damn well somebody in the neighborhood was going to see it and then they were going to tell your dad and your mom and then you were in deep shit. Remember that? That's how this... Now today... No one pays attention to everybody, anything, and everybody has this mind-your-own-business philosophy. My philosophy is my neighborhood is my business, and what's going on in my neighborhood is my business, and kids acting up or acting positively is my business. And I think that there's as big a reason for the decline in this antisocial behavior, as they call it, uh, from the gardening itself as from the community simply knowing each other and paying attention. As soon as people start to come outside of their homes and look around, the criminal element goes into a natural decline. So I thought this was a good positive kickoff story for today. Um, next question comes to me from somebody named Bill. Bill says, Jack, I'm planning on building a bucket garden next year, and I'm contemplating a sort of hybrid between the two-bucket system and the self-watering system like the guy with the buckets sitting on the gutter built. My idea is to have a water reservoir with a float valve and set the water level. The bucket would then be plumbed directly into the rest of the buckets to contain the plants. This would cause the soil in the bottom of the plant buckets to be saturated with water instead of just the soil in the wick cup. Is there any reason the soil in the bottom of a plant buckets could not be saturated with water? Picture attached of my basic idea, uh, but there would be multiple plant buckets all tied together with PVC pipe. Thanks in advance for the great work, Bill. Um, Bill, no, don't, don't do it. It will not work well. And the, the premise is good as far as keeping the levels the same. If you have one big reservoir and you plumb a bunch of other containers together and they're all plumbed at, at level, 
all of the containers will fill to the exact same level. So that part would work with any type of a reservoir system underneath your buckets. If you plumb directly into the bucket, so I've got a bucket full of dirt, and then the dirt goes all the way to the bottom, and then the bottom of the bucket is full of water up in the dirt, so it's basically a stinking, stagnant mud pool at the bottom instead of a wick that's designed to take water as the soil above needs it, uh, you're going to have real problems and you're going to have waterlogged roots and the whole thing's going to be a messy, stinky mess. So don't do that. There's a reason that people do two-bucket systems with a wick cup or Larry Hall just takes the buckets and puts the wick cup in them and sets them down into... If you look at all the self-watering containers, there's a point where the water can overflow so they don't, they don't, it doesn't overfill. Even with Larry's, if you did overfill it by action, what would happen? The water would run out the top of the, uh, of the, the rain gutter. Right, so all of these systems have a, have a place where the water, if it's, if it's overfilled, can get out. And then the other thing they have to have is they have to have a way for the soil to be moist but not soaked. Soaked is bad. You, you, you know, you're in a realm of having nothing but marsh plants. The other thing is when they're in the exact same container, you have this, this, this fact that nature, through something called osmosis, seeks equilibrium. And what will happen is eventually, instead of having water in the bottom, you'll have nothing but a mud slushy of the same consistency from top to bottom because you're putting everything into a single impermeable barrier. So, no, that's a bad idea. And if anybody else has it, don't do it. There's a reason that they always build these systems with reservoirs. Um, the next one I have for you should be a wake-up call for all of us. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to have some very strong feelings about it. Um, and feel kind of abused by the entitlement attitude. I don't so much want to talk about the entitlement attitude. I want to talk about the dependence level that we have here and the feeling that it's not just entitled, but that it's required that it be given to them, what you're about to hear. This is a story that's on Fox 5, My Fox Atlanta, Clayton County food stamp snafu angers many. Rather than explain it to you, let me just play you the audio of it, and uh, then I'll come back and give you my thoughts about it. It should scare you, even though I don't think that's the initial reaction most people will have. And frustration from dozens of Clayton County parents who say their children are going hungry tonight after their food stamps were suddenly cut off. Fox News' Justin Gray is at the live desk with the story that is all new tonight on The Edge. Justin. Tom, state officials admit to me tonight that something went wrong down in Clayton County at the office that administers food stamps and Medicaid, but they're still not sure what. Parents tell me tonight they can't buy food without those food stamps. This food stamp card ain't got number 17 cents on it. Terry Clark says she stood in line for more than six hours at Clayton County's Human Services office because food stamp help for her six children unexpectedly ended. There's no telling my kids that we can't eat. I'm not taking no because my babies don't deserve that. Nobody kids should go hungry down here in Georgia. State officials say this office was overwhelmed today with dozens of families facing a similar problem. The food stamps just not there. Me and my kids, they haven't ate since this morning. So, and I was supposed to get my food stamps yesterday and I didn't get nothing. So they was getting angry. They started banging on the windows. A state spokesperson tells me what happened here today was out of the ordinary and it was unexpected, but they say they're not sure what exactly went wrong. What was the glitch that led to this mess? 
Our budgets have not increased. They've been actually decreasing. This director admitted to me there were problems here as he tried to calm fears. And a statement, a state spokesperson says, quote, we have both state and county staff working to understand the cause of the problem today. We are working to ensure people receive their food stamps as soon as possible. I'm a cancer patient. I need these pills to survive. Okay? Candace Bennett says her cancer medications have nearly run out, and after spending all day here, her Medicaid and her food stamps are both still on hold. When are y'all going to come through? When are you going to come through? When I'm on my last pill? Or better yet, when I'm dead? And then I won't need it. State officials say that Clayton County office was closed Monday because of furloughs, and that could have contributed to the lines. They are investigating whether some sort of paperwork or computer problem might have led to some families getting their benefits cut off by mistake. Reporting at the live desk tonight, Justin Gray, Fox 5 News. All right, Justin, thanks. Now, I know that it's really easy to just roll your eyes with this and think typical. And I know that we had a situation where, of course, we took people who were stereotypical of what we would think of on food stamps and put them onto a news piece because that's what the news does. I want to remind you of the statistic here uh, before we talk about the part you should be afraid of. One in seven American families today is on food stamps. One in seven. Not all of them are uneducated people who've never worked a day in their lives, which is probably what we were hearing right here. That means that they're in your neighborhoods. They're all over the nation. And they look just like me and you, and they talk just like me and you in many instances. So where's the scary part in that? You hear the anger? You hear the outrage? You hear the entitlement attitude? This is what's happening right now to one in seven American families in our nation. They are being shaped to have the same attitude. They may not talk with Ebonics. Um, they may have at one time worked in their life. But there's a fundamental reality here that no one ever wants to talk about. If you give somebody anything for long enough, they become two things to it. One, they become dependent upon it. And two, they become convinced that it's theirs. I remember when I was talking to my own sister one time, and she's on the WIC program, or at least she was, and her children had gotten to an age where you, you, she, they're too old and she doesn't get it any, anymore. The word she used was, they're taking away my WIC. And my response was, they're not taking away your WIC. Your child no longer qualifies for their WIC. It was for your kids, not for you. See, this outrage, what's going to happen... I ask you, what's going to happen when we have to cut things back to a point where none of this stuff happens anymore or only half of it goes out the door anymore and we can't feed all these people with food stamps anymore and they've all become convinced? Do you think the London riots were a mess? What would happen if in England right now, where they had the London riots, instead of just having to pay a little bit more to go to school, which is one of the things that triggered it, you know, you actually you only get you get less assistance for college from government. That's one of the things they're really pissed off about over there. What would happen if all the people on the dole, as they call it over there, were cut off for a couple months? What would happen if it happened here? I want you to think about that. And I want you to reserve judgment on the individuals you heard there 
long enough to see the bigger picture. I do hear a lot of entitlement. I do hear, when I hear the complaining about their food stamps. And by the way, folks, at this point, this report came out on a Wednesday. This was the middle of August this came out. The office was closed on a Monday. This came out on a Wednesday. And they had gone Tuesday without their food stamps. They had been about a day without their food stamps that they're entitled to. You really need to think about the powder keg that we're creating when we put one in seven of us onto an assistance program that creates the attitude of, I have it coming to me, give it to me now, you owe me. It's not all their fault. It's not, it's not not their fault at all, right? But it's not all their fault. When you create a system like this, that's the natural result. And there are millions and millions and millions of people out there that are in this same system now. And there are tens of millions of people that are like those people. There's this whole other segment we don't talk about. And all of them are a powder keg waiting to happen if that system collapses. And when we look at our economy, we know it can't go out forever. So let's go to something a little bit um, cooler today. Uh, we've talked quite a bit on uh, the air about homeschooling. There's something, I guess it's not new, but I've really never heard the term before until a listener sent it to me last week. This is out on the AP, and the, the headline is, School's Out Forever for, quote, unschoolers, unquote. When parents are facilitators instead of teachers, homeschooling hits the road. School's never out for 14-year-old Zoe Bentley, nor is it ever in. The perky teen from Tucson, Arizona, explores what she likes when she likes as deeply as she chooses every day of the year. As an unschooler, Zoe is untethered from the demands of traditional compulsory education. That means at the moment she's checking out the redwoods of California with her family, tinkering with her website, and looking forward to making her next video on her favorite subject, exogeology, the study of geology on other planets. I don't think I was learning that when I was 14 in school. Were you guys... I love seeing the history of an area, Zoe said. Maybe a volcano erupted and grew taller over time, or wind eroded rock into sand dunes, or a meteor hit the ground and made a crater. Finding out how these and other formations formed is something I just really like. Zoe's cheer, exobiology rocks. Unschooling has been around for several decades, but advocates say there's been an uptick as more families turn to homeschooling overall. Reliable data is hard to come by, but estimates of children and teens homeschooled in the U.S. range from 1.5 to 2 million. Of those, as many as one-third of them could be considered unschoolers like Zoe, meaning their parents are facilitators, available with material and other resources rather than top-down, quote, teachers, unquote. There's no fixed curriculum, course schedule, or attempt to mimic traditional classrooms unless, of course, their children ask for things. Zoe, for instance, wanted to know more about geology once she turned 12. So she signed up for a class at Prima Community College. I had to take a placement test, which was the first test I'd ever taken, she said. It was surprisingly easy. Since, she's since She has since taken several other college classes, including astrobiology, algebra, and chemistry. Maybe, Zoe said, I'll earn a degree, but the important thing to me is to learn what I need to and want to know. Everything else is a bonus. You can read the rest of this if you want to on your own. I actually have advocated this method of teaching for a long time. I'd like to see it done in our institutions. Now, people will tell me, Jack, you can't do this in a public school. Come on. Uh, actually, I think we could. Uh, let me explain something to you. If you learn how to read, if you learn how to read from reading Batman comics, 
you still know how to read. If you learn how to write articulately by writing about Spider-Man, you still know how to write. And I don't care if it's Spider-Man, the Easter Bunny, or exobiology. If you take human beings and tune them into subjects they find interesting and say, in order to go further with this subject, you must learn to read, write, interpret, and understand, they become naturally self-motivated learners. The problem is teachers wouldn't be able to grade things by running them through an electronic screening device or reading the same dumb, stupid-ass term papers 87 times over and over again and complaining about having to work in the evenings because... Kids can no longer grade each other's papers in school because we wouldn't want somebody to be embarrassed by getting a bad grade now, would we? See, I think that there is a tremendous opportunity for society to learn from things like this. Uh, I was a piss-poor student in school. One of the many reasons I chose not to go to college. I didn't need to continue to be a piss-poor student. A piss-poor student, by the way, who could get A's and B's anytime I wanted to. Um, actually, could get an A anytime I really wanted one. But didn't really give a damn because most of it I knew did not apply to me and would never apply to me for the rest of my life. I was a terrible, terrible algebra student. But right now, if you want me to sit down and calculate alpha acid units uh, for making homebrewed beer based on the specific gravity of the wort and the percentage of alpha acids the hops have, I can do that for you. Why? Because I care. Because I have an interest. I'm also pretty good with money, and I can run some pretty complex Excel spreadsheet formulas on money because, well, I care. Now, I didn't learn any of that in school. I would learn that all with self-directed learning, and I'd like to see more of this. And I'll bet you this. If we took a school anywhere in America, from the poorest to the wealthiest community, and we ran it this way for a year... After a year, the students in that school would put the rest of everybody else to shame. And for those that say, well, some kids don't have discipline, some kids will just act up, and some kids will never sit in their desk. Well, there's behavior code, right? And the way I look at it, this could be something you strive for as a student. We could have students in schools that are unschoolers, and we could have schools that are for the normal institutional learning. And if you want to go to the unschool school, well, you can't be an ass, You have to actually put some work in. You have to put some effort in. Uh, no, you can't just show up whenever you want to. If you're going to run something as an institution, there has to be some more structure than there might be in a home. Actually, the home creates the structure, so you don't need an artificial one like you do in an institution. But something could be done here. And I'd like to have more 14-year-old kids studying exobiology than being taught revisionist history. Just saying. Uh, so you can read the rest of the article for yourself if you want. If you are a homeschooler and you practice things this way, I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to be on the show, maybe you could fill out our guest survey form. Uh, I'd like to get maybe maybe do that as like a three-part mini-episode with three different uh, homeschool parents and do like just 20 minutes a piece on it. It might be easier for you guys. Anyway, just a thought. Next one says, uh, Good day, Jack. It's from Garrett. I have a question on building and heating a greenhouse. I'm in northern Ohio, and it can get pretty cold during the winter. I have a great space on the inside corner on the outside of my house. However, there are vents for the gas-fired water heater and gas clothes dryer right there. Both are um, uh, natural gas, not liquid propane. Do you think I could use the exhaust as supplemental heat source during the cold winter? I could pipe the exhaust right into the greenhouse. I think that um, the, the carbon dioxide given off may help the plants even further. I would use this as a supplement, not a primary heat source, so it would only be a periodic use. 
I love the idea of using a black water canister to heat a catchment uh, as other heat sources, a small wood burner or the like. Thank you for all you do, Garrett. I think that you would be pumping pure CO2, basically, really noxious stuff into there um, and containing it. And I think that would probably be a problem, and uh, I wouldn't do it. Now, somebody that knows more about this than me may say there's no problem with it, but I have another idea for you. What if you took your vents and put them into a pipe, and then you ran the vents in one side and out the other side of your greenhouse? So you had a thin piece of pipe running straight through your greenhouse, and that, that pipe would become heated as the air passed through it. Since you have a water heater that you're going to be venting that way, that's going to run kind of here and there all evening long on your cold evenings, and there should be a reasonable amount of additional thermal gain created just by running the pipe through without actually venting the gas in. That's just my thought. Otherwise, you're going to have to create enough ventilation to let it out, and then you're going to lose a lot of what you gain. So that's just my thoughts on it. Anybody that's done something differently and it's worked out for you, Let me know, and uh, we'll, we'll give people an update on that one. Next one, Brent up in Prince Edward Island, Canada, uh, sent me an email. It says, short, Jesus, Parmesan cheese is expensive. I found this link. Long, the stuff's about 33 cents a pound. It's got to be one of those things we can make ourselves. I use it in Caesar salad dressing. I make myself pizza, top-off casseroles, etc. And he sends this uh, email to me with a link in it from ehow.com, how to make Parmesan cheese. It's really easy. It's not hard to make Parmesan cheese at all. In fact, I'm shocked at how expensive good Parmesan cheese is when I read how easy it is to make. Uh, I'm not going to go through the procedure on the air because you're not going to remember it anyway. There will be a link in today's show notes. It was basically heating up some milk and uh, squeezing out some curds and whey and using some starter and doing some pressing. And then here's the big thing. You're going to have to put it in your refrigerator for at least five months. You flip the cheese every other day for a few weeks And then once weekly, um, after a couple days, you put an overturned bowl on the cheese and you check the cheese for mold. If mold develops, simply remove the area of mold. So that means I've got to tie up a fairly significant space of my refrigerator for five months. And once the cheese done, is done, then maybe I can start using it and do that again. And that seems like a pretty significant space to give up in a refrigerator if you're going to make enough of this for it to matter. So it kind of makes me think more and more about the need for things like cellars. And, uh, you know, can you do this more in a cellar? Or uh, actually, I saw a pretty cool cheese room built with an uh, air conditioner. I think it was one of Paul Wheaton's videos. I'll see if I can find that for you. But if you were going to make cheese in any quantity, is it asking too much to take up that much space in a fridge? Some people have two fridges, and that might be a little bit better. Of course, you got additional electricity usage then, and you're more dependent, not less dependent on the grid. So just some thoughts. from so You guys that make cheese out there, have any of you with long-term aging found creative solutions for long-term aging of your cheese for this maturation process without taking up refrigerator space? And if so, what are they? Let me know in today's show notes or by email. Um, next one is a tip from Dave. Dave says, I took a chance on purchasing the $27 sold out after crisis disaster pet prep product from Damian Campbell that I'd seen advertised on web, on some website, not your site, of course. Complete and total ripoff. The man is a total huckster. Only hope their money back guarantee is valid. Warn your listeners, uh, Dave. And uh, I don't know who Damian Campbell is. 
I don't know what the sold out after crisis disaster prep product is. And I don't claim to endorse or deny what Dave says, but it sounds about right. There's a lot of people out there trying to sell you guys a lot of stuff and prepackage it into a low ticket quick sell item. And generally speaking, um, it's, it's just a false sense of security anyway. Even if the products are halfway decent, usually there's a pretty big cost associated with lumping this stuff together. You're much better off prepping based on your needs. And when it comes to things that you're buying commercially, good quality tools, good quality products, and uh, good quality long-term storage food and water filtration. Those all make sense to me, but they're things that you look at individually, assess your need, and buy the right stuff for yourself. When people start lumping shit together, um, it, it just really generally doesn't work out very well, especially when you're looking at $20 to, $20 to $50 price point kits. Um, you know, Some of the little mini kits are kind of cool and all, but... Uh, most of the time, you're not going to get very far with this stuff. And uh, this is all my thinking when I first read this. Well, when I actually looked it up, it's a freaking book. And it's 37 items that you need to make sure you have so they don't get sold out. And even with that, I think that, you know, basically, folks, you know what you eat every day. You know what you use every day and have redundancy for that. And I think you'll be good And paying somebody 27 bucks. For a pamphlet with a ring, with a, with a spiral binder on it to tell you what you already know, does it make sense? That $27 could probably buy you a significant, uh, storage, uh, addition to your long-term storage food of simple canned good items that you know you're gonna use. So, um, that's my thoughts. And I question anybody when anything's doing something just so they can make a profit. In other words, if I'm going to provide a product to people, I'm going to do it. So, yes, I'm going to make a profit, but is there a need and is the product helpful? Not just can I sell it. Because you can sell a lot of crap that's useless to people, uh, but selling something that's valuable to people is actually a legitimate purpose to exist and a little legitimate purpose for making a profit. So that's just my thoughts. Um, let's go on to the next one. <clears throat> uh, it says uh, this is from from Raja. Raja says, "Dude, you probably have ten questions for me. I hope they are at least interesting enough to keep you entertained." So I have two questions. Number one: What kind of things can I do to a lawn to make it useful? My friend secured a loan for a house in which he and I are going to live and hone our modern survival skills: massive garden, raise rabbits, chickens, etc. Uh, whatever else we can figure out. The house is on a quaint, tight knit street. Geographically, the location isn't perfect. The neighbors are great. Uh, the uh, location is perfect. The neighbors are great. It's just they probably would appreciate us growing a food garden in the front yard. Uh, first of all, I think that's crap. And if you want to grow a food garden or some fruit trees or something like that in your front yard, you should do whatever the hell you want, subject to local ordinances and knowing the risk you're taking if you decide to violate them, of course. Um, but what do you do to make a lawn useful? I'm going to give you the number one easiest answer to make your lawn useful. Here it is. It's two words. Plant clover. Plant clover, that's the whole thing. Clover is a nitrogen-fixing legume that will provide additional supplemental nitrogen for the grass that's growing in your yard so that you do not have to fertilize it. Your clover will go through different periods of growth throughout its season, and at times it will come under stress during drought, extreme cold, extreme heat. As it does, it will die back a little bit. When that happens, its roots will self-prune. That will release the nitrogen 
into the soil. The clover, since you're going to be raising chickens and rabbits, is valuable forage for them. They would much prefer to eat it than Bermuda grass or uh, St. Augustine grass or anything else like that. So the number one thing you can do to make your lawn useful, plant clover. Number two, don't get rid of weeds. You'll get lots of weeds growing in your lawn if you leave them grow like dandelions. They're also edible and they're usable for your little creatures. In other words, the best thing you can do to make your lawn useful is plant some things in it other than grass and let it behave more like a meadow. You can still mow it. You can still keep it nice looking. It might not have the exact manicured look where every single blade is the exact same length, but that is freaking insanity. So let weeds grow and plant clover. The next one. Question, is it better for two friends to have the same caliber handgun or is it better to diversify? I have a Glock 23 and 40 cal. And my friend, same as above, is considering getting a handgun. I gave him as much input as I could about recoil. He's a beginner stopping power. I know a bullet's a friggin' bullet, etc. He can definitely handle shooting any caliber, but now we can't decide if it's better for both of us to have consistent ammo for sharing, whether it's better to diversify with a 9mm or something else. Okay, let me put it to you just as straight up as I can, dude. Uh, if we were like roommates or something and you had a gun, I wouldn't even think about your caliber or gun or format or anything when I bought what I wanted. I would buy what I think is best for my needs and for my desires and what I want. And if I was worried about ammo, since ammo is really not that expensive, I'd go out and buy a couple thousand rounds of 9mm or 40 or 357 SIG or 45 ACP or whatever the hell I wanted and I just wouldn't worry about it. I mean, that's just, that's just as, as basic as I can get. Uh, this long term, you're going to fight off the zombie hordes and you'll have one common ammo type and sit on 10,000. You're not going to do that with a 9mm or a 40 Smith and Wesson handgun anyway. Even though the, the, the premise itself is kind of ridiculous. Um, it's just not going to happen. Okay, the next one I have for you, I'm going to do something right now. I want you to pay very close attention to me. This comes from Greg. And uh, I want you to listen real close here. If you don't listen here, and then you don't like what you hear next, it's your fault, not mine. I am giving you an explicit language adult content warning of something that's about to come. It will not come from me. It is going to come from the illustrious pen and teller. This is about high fructose corn syrup in soda and our government and bullshit. Now, if you don't like the word bullshit, you're really not going to like what you're about to hear. So you might want to skip past this part and just hear my side on the other side because they're going to use, and they're going to do it more than once, the F word. If you don't want to hear it, tune out now. If you have kids listening and you don't want them to hear it, pause it, play it later, what have you. But I just thought this was too priceless to censor or to not include uh, in today's show. So sit back. And get ready to be entertained in an adult language content way by pen and teller. Soft drinks are not healthy. Most are sweetened with high fructose corn syrup, which, like sugar, has been linked to obesity and diabetes. In fact, HFCS is an ingredient in a lot of the stuff you get at a fast food restaurant. Why? Because it's a dirt cheap way to add sweetener and extend shelf life. And why is it so cheap? Because we fucking subsidize fucking corn farmers. Our government gives about 10 billion of our tax dollars to corn farmers every year so they can produce more corn than we need. They then sell the corn at artificially low prices. They spend our money to make corn syrup cheap. And now the same government that uses our tax money to keep soft drinks cheap 
wants more of our tax money to make soft drinks more expensive. Does anyone else think this is incredibly fucked up? I mean, fuck you people who think the government should intervene more. Really, really, no kidding. Fuck you. Fuck you. Hell has been trying to think of a magic trick that would illustrate how illogical this is. But so far, he can't find anything in magic quite that stupid. Okay, well, I warned you, and if you're upset now, you have nobody to blame but yourself. I had the podcast marked explicit. I put an explicit uh, notice on the uh, show notes, and I gave you one before I played it. So if anybody emails me about this and complains, I will use... File 13, that's a fancy term for garbage can in the old office world, and today I guess it just means the delete button. Um, but seriously, the guy has a point, and when you hear the rage and, you know, the F you, F you, you know what? I'll tell you what, this is how people are starting to feel. You're going to take my money, you're going to give it to somebody to reduce the cost of something that can be used to make something that's not good for me and then sell it back to me and then you're going to tax the result to make it cost more because you say you want to protect my health. We now live in a society where our government, our government, even the, the, the part of it that we see that's it's actually public and up front, is trying to do two different things in direct opposition to each other At the same time, high fructose corn sweetener is just one example. And another thing I just couldn't live with myself if I didn't point out today for you. Have you noticed how we don't call it high fructose corn syrup anymore? What do they call it now? Corn sugar. Guess what, folks? It's the same damn thing. And I, I have to tell you something here. I really, uh, I really completely agree. I'm, I'm getting to the point where I feel, you know, those of you that want to make governor, government bigger, stronger, uh, those of you that want government to intervene more, those of you that want any additional laws or regulations, F you. That's how I'm starting to feel. And that scares me. All right? This is, this is back to the thing that I said, you know, you should be scared with the food stamp thing. We're getting to a point where I, I think it's very, very, very dangerous uh, position in life right now. Where the people that are fed up, that are tired, that just want to be left alone... We're starting to like go into what I would call like a feedback loop. Uh, let's say you have a microphone that's too close to another microphone or piece of audio equipment, and you talk into it, and you get that horrible screeching sound. The louder you talk, the louder the feedback loop becomes until you can't be heard anymore, and no one listens to you, and no one pays attention to you. At least that's how you feel, and that's when people start to get emotionally charged, and that's where people start to do things they normally wouldn't do. And I think that's where we're getting, because we're, we're getting to a point where there's a flat-out war between people that are saying, look, just leave me the frick alone. Just leave me alone. Just stop screwing with me. Stop telling me my kids can't have a lemonade stand. Stop telling me I can't use raw milk. Stop telling me that I can't videotape police that are on public duty being paid for with public money. Stop, 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 stop. And you know what we're hearing back? That's what we're hearing back. And that's when people start to have literal rage with blood shooting out of their eyes. That's where this place is headed if we don't take control back. And then the scary part is, I don't know how we're going to take control back. Unless we keep focusing on ourselves. And we need to build a critical mass of people that stand up and say, I will take care of myself. I don't need you. Go away. That is the only thing that they will ever understand. And there has to be millions of us, not tens of thousands. 
I think we're hitting an area where we're in the tens of thousands to low hundreds of thousands. That's far cry from millions. We need millions of people that won't stand in the street and go, when are y'all going to come through? When are y'all going to come through and give me my food stamps? All right? We need millions of people to stand up and do that. Here's the secret. There's probably over half of us, right? 150 million people that are that person. But because of the feedback loop and because of defeatism, we're not behaving that way. So if you thought this was just about high fructose corn syrup, it's actually much bigger. It's a, it's a picture of the absurdity of government and the infringement on individual rights by government and the absolute way it's manipulating us to a point where we start to lash out. Let me tell you something about that that you need to understand. They want you to. They want you to lash out. They want you to get angry. They want you to do stupid shit. They want you to get violent. They want you to go in direct, clear public opposition where the average sheep will look at you and go, oh, he's a bad guy. <laughs> right? They want to squish you before you get popular, before what you're doing starts to reach other people and other people start to look at you and go, oh, wow, that looks like a pretty good way to live. So don't let it happen. When you hear the feedback loop, stop talking, start doing. Or you're going to end up like Penn and Teller. Screaming the F word, people laughing, people finding it amusing, but it doesn't necessarily really get a lot done. Now, I love Penn and Teller. I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying they're entertainers. We're citizens of this nation, and it's up to us to behave that way. And to be careful about how angry we let this stuff get us. And if you guys know, I rant, I get upset. But it's just to convey my emotion to you guys. We have to be smart. And if we're not smart, then we're going to fall into a real dangerous trap here. I believe this nation is headed to a point where it cannot come back in its current form. And I do not believe that's all bad. I believe the currency must collapse and the rebuilding must begin. I plan on being around here to do the rebuilding with you, though. And I'm hoping you're planning to be here with me. Let's take another one. This one came as part of a very long email, a well-thought-out email, uh, with a lot of different stuff on it, but only one part that really uh, I wanted to answer today. It says, could the next economic bubble be a prep bubble? And this is from Michael. And um, I'll tell you what. Is there going to be a prep bubble? Will there be a point where all of this disaster prep, multi-million dollar marketing campaign, uh, band, giant, you know, even like the expos that I'm going to, National Geographic doing shit, will this all come to an end? Uh, yeah, it will. It will end in its current sensationalistic uh, fever where people are hyping the shit out of everything. And that will happen. It's such a small economic component of the total global economy and U.S. economy, though it won't even be a blip on the radar screen. It'll be just like twenty, uh, the year 2000, the Y2K thing. And it's probably going to happen in about, I would say, Christmas of 2012. Uh, when we go past the 21st and Mayans don't rise from the grave and eat your children or whatever other kind of crazy bullshit people think is going to happen because of a freaking Mayan calendar that ends on that day as opposed to our calendar, which ends every year on December 31st. So, the, And the other side of what's going to cause it to burst, if you want to call it that, is the 
absolute sensationalistic need of the media. I just got an email from National Geographic last week wanting me to be involved once again with Doomsday Preppers or whatever the hell the, the thing is, the one they're going to be doing a casting call, by the way. If you'd like to be featured as a freak, talk to Nat Geo at the, self, the Self-Reliance Expo, okay? Because uh, they'd like to feature you putting gas masks on your children. That's what they would like to do. And they're doing these shows. And all of these other networks want to do these shows and sensationalize everything. And this is why, folks, I don't pat myself on the back a lot, but as a business person, I have never participated in this nonsense for one second since the first day I got on the air and said, Hi, this is Jack Spierko with a new thing called the Survival Podcast. Even though I was talking to survivalists, I've never, ever done this once. And why? Because it always is the way that bubbles in individual niches and industries are created. Hype, 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 hype. And your people that you're selling to will only let you hype them for so long until one day they say, okay, enough. I- I'm done with this. This is bullshit. Right? And-, and nothing happened. And they're just like those people we talked about last week returning the generator to Home Depot or wanting money back on food that they purchased because the hurricane wasn't as bad as they expected. It's stupid. And of course, there will be a pop. And here's how much I think it will affect me. One-tenth of one percent, maybe. Because I don't do it. And I don't want you to do it. And I don't want you to buy into it. And I guarantee you it's cost me media appearances. I guarantee you it's cost me, uh, you know, let's call them symbiotic relationships with strategic partners and things like that. But you know what? I don't need that because I'm not here to ride a wave. I'm here to help you live a better life every single freaking day. And when you see it happen, you know what to do. Do what I told you to do two and a half years ago. Cart your ass to eBay and Craigslist and start buying all the stuff you couldn't afford up till then for your long-term support on, the, on a discount when all of these fools start dumping everything Because they don't realize what they have. And they don't realize why they've done what they've done. And that's what's going to happen here. That's what's going to happen. People who are following blindly because they just know something's coming, man. It's all going to explode. And they have no idea what that even means. They will have a big, giant, collective case of buyer's remorse. And God forbid the economy should go into a true false recovery. Something that sustains for four or five years until this debt crisis finally reaches a point where we can't fix it anymore and they go into a total slumber. So there you go on the basis of the question. On the next real bubble, the one that's going to blow everything up, it's not a bubble, it's a bomb. It's a bomb. And it's municipal debt. It's cities, counties, states, and federal government are going to reach breaking points where they can't pay their debts anymore. Now, the U.S. government will always pay its debts, okay? because it will just print more money and devalue the old money, which is beneficial to them anyway, because when they devalue the money to pay old debt, they make the money they're using worth less, so their debt costs them less when they do this. That game can only go on for so long, but it can go on longer than cities, counties, and states, because they actually can't live that way. Cities, counties, and states can't print their own money. Thank God. But... Eventually, when enough of them line up to the Fed and say, help us, please, or they say, hey, when are y'all going to come through, right? 
Right? When, when, when Atlanta, Georgia, and Seattle, Washington, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Los Angeles, San Francisco, when all these cities that are Little Rock, Arkansas, that are freaking broke, turn collectively to the federal government and go, when are y'all going to come through? And the Fed goes, it's too much. We can't do it all. Boom. That's when you have your economic disaster. And it won't look like what most of the people selling you this crap in this prep bubble, as uh, Michael so aptly calls it, say it's going to look like. I hope you're prepared for it, though. And you do that by being as prepared as you can for the most mundane, boring disasters that you can possibly think of. If you do that, if you do that, if you get rid of your debt, if you think intelligently, if you get yourself a decent little piece of property, if you, if you create true wealth in your life, you can stand through any recession or depression. That means you have the ability to provide yourself housing, water, food, energy, and security. If you can do that, you're going to be okay. A lot of that is more about how you think and how you live and the choices you make than the crap that you buy. Just saying. And beware of anyone that's trying to sell something just because they want to sell it to you. Right? There's smart things to buy. A good water filtration system is a good thing to buy. But remember the prime directive, <clears throat> the number one tenet to modern survival philosophy. Everything that you do to prepare for disasters and emergencies tomorrow should make your life better today even if nothing goes wrong. So when you're buying something and it only will pay off if there's a disaster, it's probably not at that time the best decision you could be making. I know I've just pissed a lot of people off and I don't give a damn because my loyalty is to who? You guys, the audience, just like it always has. Been that way for 738 episodes as of today and God willing it'll be that way for a thousand or more more. Next up today, Jake says, uh, this is actually... Uh, something totally different. It was just one line that I wanted to share with everybody. Uh, but he was talking about debt, and he sent me an email about culinary school graduates that are claiming they were ripped off because they were promised they would get these really great jobs, and now they're getting like $8 an hour jobs as like a baker at some kind of donut factory or something like that. And I'll link to that article, and you can read it. A lot of you sent it to me, so I know it's on a lot of people's radar because I'm always bashing higher education and the student loan system and all. But these kids are borrowing twenty eight to $50,000 for seven-month programs to learn how to cook. Now, look, I love chefs. Chef Keith Stone's a great sponsor, right? And it's great that you can be classically trained as a chef, but it doesn't take $28,000 to teach somebody how to make cakes and a freaking donut in a pastry program for seven months. Okay? And, 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 and these people probably have been ripped off, but it's no different than anybody else being ripped off in higher education. Read the article if you want to. Um... But the one line that he gave me in this, again, Jake from San Francisco, that I just love this, and it's his original quote. I asked him if I could you know, re reuse it and, and give him credit for it. <laughs> Listen to this one. Debt is a lot like VD. Nobody wants to talk about their personal experience with it, and more people have it than you think. I thought that was awesome. And the next time you think about going into debt for something, remember that quote. Debt is a lot like VD. Nobody wants to talk about their personal experience with it, and more people have it than you think.
All right. Uh, next, Ben asked me, he says, I think your audience would like to hear some semi-regular updates on the development of AgriTrue. Uh, just a minute or two once a month would be good. It will continue to re-stimulate interest in the concept. Uh, you're right. I should talk about it more. We're kind of in this like developmental stage right now where I have uh, the guy that's basically acting as our product manager, uh, getting biz and, and, and coming up with the final st uh, uh, spec so we can actually have it coded, so we can have a product that's working. And I think it'll be a lot more exciting for people when they can actually see Well, this is what a producer profile looks like. This is what a, a home producer profile looks like. This is this is how you uh, obtain certain uh, levels of uh, uh, of achievement. And I'll give you the, the big update. We did a uh, week and a half ago a conference call on a Saturday uh, about agriculture. I got this the, you know, developmental committee of volunteers together and said, you know, what do you think of some different things? And we had talked about one of the things doing with agriculture is having like a silver, gold, platinum level. Uh, which was highly encouraged by Paul Wheaton, who actually wanted me to go further with like a, a scoring model. And we came up with a bunch of different ways that we could have people advance. I was thinking things like, well, to go to Platinum, you have to take a permaculture design course. And some of the people on the line said, well, then we're saying permaculture is the way. Well, I don't have a problem with that, you know. And then somebody spoke up and said, well, what about like biointensive gardening? If, if permaculture, because you be, but I was like, God almighty. And I, I realized something that, 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 that disturbs me. People that listen to my show all the time that have heard me talk about permaculture all the time don't even know what permaculture is, right? Permaculture is not, this is how you plant a tomato. It's a design system. And something like biointensive gardening would, would, would just bolt right into it. it. It is a form of permaculture, right? I mean, permaculture is about a prime directive and, th and three, uh, three, uh, three principles, right? And, uh, and then 12 sets of design principles on top of that. And pretty much if it's in there, then it's permaculture. But I realize if the people that listen to me all the time that are interested in AgriTrue, that are volunteering for this, didn't understand that, then probably most of society wouldn't have any idea what it meant either. Well, Nick Ledoux from Save Our Skills and uh, it popped up with an idea and said, why don't we just have, you're either AgriTrue or you're not, we have a base set of standards, uh, no GMO, uh, you know, no, pre no, no preventative use of antibiotics. If an animal's sick and it can be treated, you treat it, and there's a time period before then it would be used for production after that. Um, you know, uh, soil management and improvement program published, producer profile saying what you do, how you do, and, what, and how you do it. And then for things like uh, becoming a PDC certified person, or if we build a course for somebody, or hosting a workshop, there would be like little badges, just like on, I guess, I don't know about this, but he compared it to like Xbox things where you have certain achievements. And uh, I thought that was great, and I think everybody else agreed with that. So that's what we're going to do. So a producer that goes beyond the minimal standards in certain areas will have clear-cut things that let them get, let's say, call them badges of achievement that would go on their certificate and go on their profile. So that's where AgriTrue is right now. If you'd like to be involved with this, we need lots of people helping with this. Uh, putting together the animal care standards, because what's, what is, let's say, uh, ethical care of a rabbit, a lot of us can disagree about what that is. But we can also uh, agree what clearly is not, or ethical care of a chicken. Burning a chicken's beak off and having it live in a chicken house with other chickens where it can't move, never sees sunlight, never gets good food, and eats food that's piled on top of its own shit, not ethical treatment of a chicken. So what we need to do is talk to producers that are actually doing it for a living and say, okay, here's the minimal standards that we would say are agri-true, and then people that go beyond can showcase that. So I need people talking to, to people that raise animals. The plant thing, we pretty much have skin. That one's actually really easy because it's very hard to unethically treat a carrot, right? You can't, if you abuse a carrot, it just doesn't grow, 
right? Uh, and as long as we don't genetically modify it or spray it with herbicides or pesticides or something like that, um, we're good. But when it comes to animal care, it's a sensitive issue, and we need to make what people want match what's practical out of the producer side of things. If you'd like to be part of the developmental community with AgriTrue, just send me an email with the word AgriTrue, A-G-R-I-T-R-U-E, in the subject line, and I will give you a link to the private forums. What I want to finish up today with is something I've been saying since the very beginning. And I'm in good company when Gary North agrees with me. And it's about one of my favorite and least favorite at the same time people out there. There's a lot of people in the money manager, money marketing, saving, debt elimination world that I think are just dumbasses. They're just idiots. That I think if you follow their advice, you get hurt and you get hurt almost every single time. Top of the list for complete financial pinheads, Susie Orman. If you listen to Susie Orman, go Stop. I was going to say, go get your head examined, but no, it won't even help you. Just stop. If you listen to her at all, if you see her come on the TV, turn the channel. If somebody gives you one of her books, throw it away. Put it in the compost heap. The lady is a pea brain. But then there's some people out there that I, I, I look at and I go, I like a lot about them. Dave Ramsey is one of those people. Dave Ramsey, his advice on eliminating personal debt is outstanding. His advice on businesses never using debt is moronic. And most businesses use debt. That's, it's, it's a total different um, world. Now, that doesn't mean a business should be stupid about debt, but it's much easier and safer to leverage a business with some debt than it is to do so uh, in your, your household. And there's completely a different set of rules when there's failure in business than failure as an individual. Okay, So uh, I agree with Gary on that. Uh, but he is lousy on investing. Absolutely terrible investment advice. You don't believe me? Let me read to you what Gary North has to say. I've kept my mouth closed on Dave Ramsey for years, but no longer. I've finally had enough. In January of 23rd of 2008, a phone call, he, uh, in a January 23rd, 2008 phone call, he exerated ex Peter Schiff's book, Crash Proof, after telling the caller that he had never heard of the book or Schiff. This was unconscionable. The rule is simple. If you attack a book, read it first. The caller, a young woman, said her father was worried about a coming stock market crash. He was buying gold and foreign currencies. Ramsey said the advice was absolutely ludicrous. On that day, the Dow was $12,270 and gold was $880 an ounce. On Friday, September 2nd, this week, the Dow closed at $11,240 and gold closed at $1,884.50. You tell me, Ramsey or Schiff. But it gets worse. Ramsey's off-microphone research man told Ramsey that Peter Schiff is Irwin Schiff's son. Ramsey then went into a tirade over the father's tax protest advice. He then said, this kid's dad is a nut burger, uh, which probably means the kid is a nut burger. No, it means that Dave Ramsey is a disgrace. He verbally tarred and feathered Peter Schiff for a position Schiff personally opposes the tax result. The kid is three years younger than Ramsey. He runs a business, and just for the record, he has never declared bankruptcy, while Ramsey did. He has become a multimillionaire by parlaying the act of contract breaking into an anti-debt career. He is a ref like a reformed alcoholic who says no one should take a drink. For the record, I hope he has long since repaid all his former creditors with interest. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again, Psalm 31, 21a. Uh, by the way, in uh, Dave Ramsey's defense, he said several times on the air uh, that he has, in fact, repaid all of the money he owed 
even when he went through bankruptcy and was not required by law to repay it, he did make all those debts right. So just taking up for him a little bit here. Um, let's go skip. You can read the rest if you want to. Um, but this is Dave Ramsey's basic advice. If you, if you ask Jack, where do I put my money? I say you got to consider your life and where you're going and your risk tolerances and be very careful and keep some money in cash and don't lock it all up. And I will not give you percentages because as an individual, your desires, needs, and goals are different than everybody else's and you have to make your own decisions with your own money. Dave Ramsey doesn't have a problem with answering that question. He says, uh, 25% a growth mutual fund, 25% a growth and in income mutual fund, 25% in an aggressive growth mutual fund, and 25% in international mutual fund. Well, what's wrong with this rosy picture? And I'm going to read Gary North's response here. The book, the, uh, I'm not going to read that. You, you read that if you want. I'll tell you what I think is wrong with this picture. Uh, first of all, growth mutual, growth and in income mutual, aggressive growth. They're so close. Many of them are probably holding the same stocks. There's some differences. I'll, I'll grant you that. Some have a little more risk-prone companies than others, but three of them are almost identical. Uh, you might as well just buy one. Seriously. I'm, I'm sorry. It's true. Take a look at the track records of anything in these classifications, and you're going to see that the risk exposure is very, very similar. Um, and any, any, uh, you know, if you have good years, any additional uh, uh, savings with the, the, you know, protecting yourself in the bad years is probably going to equal out anyway. And then 25% in international mutual fund. Well, that's like saying put 25% in meat. I mean, international, there's a billion international funds in a billion different international sectors. Uh, this is nonsense. And, and that's all, so what percentage goes into cash then? Oh, your 90-day 90, 90 emergency fund, and that's it. The rest of your savings all go into paper assets. The guy's investing advice blows, absolutely blows. And I'll prove it to you right in the beginning. Let me, let me read this again. January 23rd, 2008, the caller said that her father was worried about a coming market crash. He was buying gold and foreign currencies, and Randy said this advice was absolutely ludicrous. Okay? Who was better off? The person that stayed the course or the person that followed Peter Schiff's advice in the book Crash Proof? And has Ramsey ever apologized? Has the man ever said, you know, I was wrong about this? No, and he's not going to because one thing I can say about Dave Ramsey and I respect is he's consistent. He's consistently right about that and he's consistently wrong about investing. And I just want to point that out for a very different reason than you might think at the end of today's show. Not to say, look, Jack was right when he said this and Gary North agrees with me now because Gary North and I disagree about plenty. There's plenty of people out there that can be solid on one thing and weak on another. And it's up to you to decide where you're going to listen to somebody and where you're going to take their advice and where you're not going to. And that definitely even applies to me. It's up to you. What advice I give you that you take and make your own? And what advice that I give you, you just go, bah. and I'm okay with either one. Just don't turn around and try to convince me that I'm wrong and that I should change my stance. Because like Dave Ramsey, I'm going to be consistent, even if I'm consistently wrong, until such time as I know that I'm wrong. Now, here's the thing. If I had told people in January of 2008, don't worry about the stock market, and, 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 and less than a year later the stock market was down to 7,000 freaking points, I would do a little bit of internal self-examination and a little bit of admitting that I was wrong. And I think that we all can do that from time to time, but when you look at public figures that are giving you advice just because they're public figures, just because they have radio shows and TV shows, and just because somebody else said something great about them, please evaluate the track record. 
please evaluate the track record before you take their advice and spend your money based on it. And I think if you do that, you'll be able to make decisions for yourself, which is what it's really all about anyway. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares